0: This Is a Romy cast. This podcast was recorded in December of
1: 2021.
0: One, two, three, four. <laughs> Do you ever get tired of the Beatles? Uh, I play the bass uh, and I play the drums, but I play a guitar and I too play a guitar. Is he dead? Sit you down, father. Rescue. Take 12. <laughs> we three, so Can one we one just one. have a little less guitar in here? Five, oh, just that's that's all the No, let's move away. It's coming. No, take three. The bit that
1: John finally got just after that, and we both have to do what we wanted do, what to do. Yeah, it's not bad, that one. Keep that one. Mark it fab.
0: Hello there, and welcome to another edition of The Walrus Was Paul, a series of podcasts hosted by me, Paul Romanek. Join me and let's take a stroll along the cast iron shore and peel off the layers of the glass onion with another great musical guest as we discuss their favorite Beatles or Beatles solo album. This episode is part two of a discussion with musician, songwriter, and producer Mo Berg of The Pursuit of Happiness. And we are talking about Paul McCartney's 1970 debut solo album, McCartney. If you're looking for part one of the discussion, and you should, If you haven't heard it yet, you can find part one wherever you get your podcasts or at the podcast website, which is RomyCast.com. That is R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com. Might as well listen to the episodes in order. So go back and grab part one before you listen to part two, if you haven't listened to it already. If you head to the website, you can find each and every episode that we've done so far in this podcast series. This is the 14th episode of series two. You can find the first 13 episodes of this series as well as all 15 episodes of Series 1 plus a a few special episodes tossed in there as well. And while you're there, if you see fit, could you please make a donation to support keeping this show commercial-free? Nice and clean, no commercials, that's the way I like it. Any donation is greatly appreciated, and your donation goes towards offsetting the costs of the show. Web hosting, advertising, some equipment costs. It's a labor of love for me. I do this because I enjoy it. It's kind of a hobby. But if you enjoy the show, if you enjoy my work and my efforts, then please do consider a donation to support the show and those efforts. Maybe just a couple of dollars per episode. Not that much. Just click on the donate button on the website if you would like to donate. Along those lines, big shout out to a patron who goes by the alias Diamond Dog. He or she says, in a nice note that they sent along, Hi Paul, as I've been blessed during this pandemic to be able to retain my job and work from home, I have made it a New Year's resolution to support more creators of content that I consume. Hear, hear to that. Uh, I've been a fan of yours for a long time and enjoy your pod. Hoping to see and hear more of you in the months ahead. All the best to you and thanks for all your great work. Well, what a lovely, lovely note to receive with that donation. Diamond Dog, thank you so much. Double thumbs up or double flippers up I guess if it's the walrus but thank you so much that was really really kind of you to send that along and uh, as well to make a donation if you would like to make a donation I'll give you a shout out too happy to do that just visit the website romicast.com to start the process and also if you don't already please subscribe to the show via your favorite podcast provider and if you could leave a positive review or rating that doesn't cost you a penny And it does help other people find the podcast. Uh, Another thing that helps out is, you know, retweet it and say, hey, you know, check this out. Uh, Anything like that, greatly appreciated. And as I say, just takes a few moments of your time, no cost involved. You can follow the podcast on Twitter or Instagram at the handle Romanuck Paul. That is Romanuck Paul. There is also a Facebook group page. Do a search for the Walrus Was Paul podcast page and you will find it. Our guest once again is Mo Berg. Mo is best known as the founder, chief songwriter, and singer of The Pursuit of Happiness. Now, if you're a Canadian of my vintage, uh, this band probably holds a special place in your musical memories. They did enjoy some international success, but they were really big in Canada, and their debut album, Love Junk, was huge. It was produced by the great Todd Rundgren and is a fantastic listen still to this day. I'll put it on once in a while. Uh, The big hit off the album was the single, I'm an Adult Now, a driving guitar. Song with fun lyrics, a great vocal performance, and one of my favorite guitar solos. The whole album is just full of great, it's power pop, and it is just great hooks and tap your feet and sing along. It's it's still all these years later fun to listen to. Uh, Mo is still busy as a musician, sort of. He plays occasional gigs with The Pursuit of Happiness. He is also in the Canadian supergroup, The Trans Canada Highwaymen, along with Stephen Page, ex of The Bare Naked Ladies a fantastic solo artist in his own right. Craig Northey from Odds and Chris Murphy of Sloan. Uh, and Moe is also keeping busy as an independent producer. You can find Moe on Twitter and Instagram at Mo T-P-O-H. That is Mo, his name, T-P-O-H. Uh, the Pursuit of Happiness is what the T-P-O-H stands for. Uh, you can also visit his website, Moberg. Dot ca the pursuit of happiness music is available on all streaming services mo good to see you again welcome back my friend well, I'm glad to be back, Paul. Thanks a lot for having me. And who would want, who wouldn't want to talk about the Beatles? Okay, so before we tuck into side two, I want to ask you about something you wrote. Um, so, so here we are, two relatively old farts talking about music from 50 years ago. Um, so a lot, but most definitely not all of the music I listened to is from 20, 30, 40 years ago. Here's what you wrote. Uh, music has the tiniest place in our culture, right? right now. Most people barely give a crap about it. The people who really care about music are old and listen to their old records because they remember a time when music was everything. That's the quote. So my question to you is is was it really everything or do we just think it was? Will there be 50 year anniversary box sets of Drake albums, for example, for people now? What do you think? Well,
1: that's a very interesting question. That's something I do think about. Um, the, I mean, I think the difference between, you know, what things were like when we were kids and what things are like for kids now is that, well, two things. One is that there wasn't a lot of other things other than music. You could watch terrible television. Television was awful awful and you could go to the movies and that was kind of it you know there wasn't you know video games were just kind of getting started and you could go to play pinball and play Galaga or Space Invaders but you know there the the, the sort of like you know there's I remember, you know, when home, you know, video game system started. And even even then, it was still all very primitive. But music was like, you know, that was kind of the main thing. Like, when you were a kid, that was your main preoccupation was music. Because there wasn't much else, really, unless you were into sports, that was kind of the only thing there was. And so, even if you were into sports, there was still plenty of time to listen to music and still like watch sports or play sports where now kids have so many distractions. There's so many things they can do and there's, you know, they have computers and phones and video games and there's, you know, So much more television, and and there's just so many other things to distract them that music doesn't have that same sense of prominence in their life. Um, The other thing is that music is so much more ubiquitous now. It's just like it's everywhere, and it's easy to get. And you can go on your computer and listen to every song in the world. When I was a kid, you know, I I didn't get that wasn't couldn't buy a lot of records. I didn't have the money for it and stuff like that. You know, I remember you know my brother getting like Jesus Christ Superstar, and I would just plug in the headphones and I'd listen through all four sides like twice through, you know, because it's like I just didn't have anything else to do and it was just like I was so enraptured by it. I just like, this is so incredible. I just love this so much and, and you know, and it wasn't like it was taking and there was some, oh, no, let's do some other thing. There was no other thing to do and so I really was able to just sort of completely give myself to music. So I think that's part of it. It's just like music was so important um, because there wasn't anything else to do, partly, but uh, I think that also, that the music that was being made was um, there was still so many people breaking down doors like all through the 60s and the 70s, there was still so much innovation, so many people just doing new things, doing different things, and, and that's not to say there isn't that now, there definitely is, but it's uh, in terms of music composition, it's like one of the things I love so much about the 70s and, and the 60s too, I guess, is that people expected you to be experimental. They, ex- they actually wanted it. They didn't want you to do the same record that you did the last time. Whereas now, it's like, you know, we want that, you know, we want you to reproduce that hit you had on your last record. Let's get another version of that. Like, where's the I'm an Adult now on this record, you know? And it's like, it's kind of that's the world we live in now because music has become so hyper commercialized. It was never as, as much of a commodity back then. People didn't expect you to sell 10 million copies of a record back then. They, you know, that, that was not a thing. But, you know, your audience was like, what new thing is David Bowie what are we going to do what new thing is? are the Beatles going to do or the Rolling Stones or the Who or you know any like Lou Reed or Iggy Pop what are these guys going to do they're always doing something new and always sort of pushing the boundaries and I don't see that that's one thing I do not see
0: yeah, yeah, no, and we can really go down the two cranky old guys. Because yeah. then, then I you feel get, like it right now. Well, I feel like I'm
1: yeah. screaming, get off my lawn in a second.
0: Yeah, because <laughs> well, you get into the whole, you know, streaming numbers and you know, which are which I think are bullshit because it, it takes you no effort to stream a song. Click, click with your thumb, and you can stream a song for thirty seconds, and that's counted as a stream. You know, back in the day, if you liked a song, you had to get on the bus, go to the record store, walk in, ask for the single, put your money down and there was way more effort involved way more effort involved to sell sure. a record back then than there is now but uh, there we go, get off of my lawn yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> so side two of McCartney, let's tuck into side two and cut one and it's called Ooh You the, uh, the the starts like an instrumental based on a, an opening kind of riff and McCartney adds some lyrics and there we go more guitar
1: It's it's definitely in that camp of like it feels completely improvised. Um, It seems like he came up with that really killer riff, which is a great riff. And he came up with that and said, oh, this is great. And he started playing it and then he just started jamming with himself and again came up with some... The lyrics seem very improvised too. They just seem like he just started singing whatever came into his mind at any moment. I don't think I I wouldn't be surprised if he hadn't even written the lyrics down when he started doing the vocal on this. And so yeah, but it's it's it, again, I think that like I said earlier, there's a nugget of something great in every one of these songs. And that the nugget in this one is just that killer riff. It's just a great riff. And again, you know, in another time, if he had done this with the Beatles, and that's what I I, I always think. And, and this goes back to something we were talking about. And this song kind of really reminds me of this idea. It's like I wonder how the like if the Beatles had been the Rolling Stones or the Who, like if they just stayed together and they just kept making records. And you know they and Paul McCartney still wrote all these songs, and John Lennon still wrote Instant Karma and all those songs. And and what would what would these have all sounded like? If they'd stayed as the Beatles and they worked with, you know, maybe continued working with George Martin or didn't, or work with Glenn Johns or worked with whoever, what would these have all sounded like? Because it almost sounds like there's more of a song here than what we're what we're getting.
0: Yeah, I mean, I think you can go down all of the Beatles' early solo works and play that game. You know, I mean, the Beatles, they played around the edges of All Things Must Pass, but how great would that have been with a little George Martin tasteful production and maybe a McCartney and Lennon harmony vocal? Um, You know, this song is a good example that maybe could have benefited. How much better a song would Jealous Guy have been with McCartney working with Lennon on it, and and again, George Martin production. Like, I it's it's uh, yeah. You, I, I love I love to play that game. You could go and pick a bunch of individual tracks off of all their early solo solo works, and you'd have one hell of a Beatles album. I think.
1: Absolutely, yeah. I mean, it, and that's the thing that's uh, you know the 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 to me the big winner in in the breakup of the Beatles was George Harrison because he was always underappreciated and he didn't get as many of his songs. And he I've heard that he said that the reason why All Things Must Pass was a triple record is he had so many th- songs he wanted to perform that he never would have got to play with the Beatles as soon as he had a chance to do a solo record he just put everything he had on that record and that's why it was such a, a, a big project. Well,
0: well, you, uh, you, you hear him in the Get Back documentary the Peter Jackson version out now he's, at one point he says I've got enough uh, songs uh, in the can for the next ten Beatles albums uh, right. you know like his allotment of a couple of songs and uh, Yeah, that's exactly, you know, what it did. But I still, again, imagine how much better that record, the whole record would have sounded had he been collaborating with Lennon and McCartney and George Martin and Ringo instead of... Phil yeah, Spector. Absolutely.
1: absolutely. You know, I agree.
0: You know, uh, so we move into uh, a real skiffle kind of feel to the song. And and yeah, the lyrics, I think it's about Linda. Uh, you know, look like a woman, dress like a lady, talk like a baby, love like a woman. I mean, he's, he's, uh, I think at that time early in their relationship, he's getting a lot of sex. He likes hanging out with her. She's a beautiful woman and he's he's obsessed, right? Right. Uh, absolutely. I don't think that really comes through. Uh, side two and track two and, you know, maybe another one that was inspired by Linda Mama Miss America, another ad lib track.
1: So this song here is the song I'm most happy that it didn't get any more produced than it is, because this is just savage. This track, it's really, really good, and again, it feels very, very improvised. Um, and it's sort of like a, it's a weird play on a 12 bar that just turns into a 12 bar about halfway through. There's this weird turn about two thirds of the way through the song um, and then all of a sudden it just turns into like a hardcore blues track and uh, like rock blues I guess more rock blues because there's a little breakdown where he's like because the up until that point the whole song constantly feels like it's going to fall apart at any moment again I I bring up the guided by voices because that happens with their songs all of a sudden they're playing and all of a sudden the song ends and it's like what just happened it's like and that's what this this song always felt like Paul was just going to stop playing or he's just going to run out of gas and I think a lot of times it feels like he doesn't know what he's doing next. And then all of a sudden that when he stops playing the drums and it breaks down and then he starts playing again and it just starts to rock hard. And it's honestly that part where it starts to really rock, that's like my favorite part of the whole album. <laughs> ¶¶ just sounds so cool. And they just, it's like, one of the things that the Beatles don't get credit for is for four white dudes from... Liverpool, I might have said this last time, but it's like they were a really groovy band. And I think playing learning all those covers of all those R and B songs and stuff like that, that really influenced their playing. And it just once he gets into that and then and the piano, the interplay between the piano and the guitar in this is so great because sometimes the piano will kind of anticipate the chord and it will create this weird chord inversion that's really, really cool sounding. Yeah, but it's like yeah, that last third of this song is like that's almost the highlight of the whole album for me. And it's just like I, I, I love the word savage for this. It just sounds savage. It just sounds like dirty and like so hard rocking. It's like the, one of the most hard rocking moments Uh that I can never remember from Paul McCartney.
0: Well, your uh, ear, not surprisingly, is very good because it originally did consist of two distinct pieces which, according to McCartney, ran into each other by accident, as he says, and became one. You can hear the edit at 157, about 157. Uh, Mm -hmm. So, yeah, two different songs there. And, man, you are so right. I mean, the Beatles love their great black artists. You you know, Little Richard, Chuck Berry, uh, you know, they they love their songs. Uh, The black girl groups who they love to cover, you know, the Shirelles, the Crystals, uh, all those bands. So big, big influence. Uh, This song for movie aficionados, uh, it showed up in the 1996 film Jerry Maguire. It's it's on the soundtrack to that movie. So Cameron Crowe, um, who was the screenwriter for that movie, the old Rolling Stone rock critic, must have had a soft spot for the song as well. So uh, we go from a real kind of you know hard Paul song into another one, uh, not so hard. Cut three is Teddy Boy, and it's another one that he wrote in India in 1968. What do you think of this one? This is the story of a boy named Ted. If his mother said.
1: Ted be good He would She told him tales But a soldier dad, But it made her sad And she cried Oh my Ted used to tell her He'd be twice as good It's funny and, uh, uh, good. This sounds almost more like a Pete Townsend kind of song It sounds like the kind of song that like the Who would have done in sort of like the late '60s kind of era of their career, and and you know, uh, Pete Townsend used to write about sort of like disenfranchised young boys. I mean, I wrote a whole op rock opera about like a blind, deaf, and dumb kid, and 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 so th- this has that sort of like this song is feels very unsettling to me. Like it's 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 a weird song because it's like I I, I have a real hard time with like s- songs about boys that are in like very dysfunctional home situations and it's just like you know that they don't have a sense of security and that kind of thing and so this is a weird song for me for Paul because it doesn't really I'm trying to think of another song there's certainly nothing in the Beatles catalog that really reminds me of this very much like um I mean he's it's not like he hasn't done sort of like these sort of serious story songs I mean certainly Eleanor Rigby would be you know a, a good example um, but Eleanor Rigby was just more like a, a you know like a a little movie or something, but this song is just, it's, it's, it, and one of the things about it that makes it, that, that sort of accentuates the darkness of this song for me is the harmonies. And again, there's sort of haunting and creepy sounding. Um, and I guess that's Linda McCartney singing it, but it's just, it's also a very weird interval. It's just like this one note and they, over the chorus. And it's just, it really gives it a feeling of, of being dark, for some reason. And I gotta be honest with you, I, I've i listened to this song millions of times and I still don't really know what it's about. Like, I don't really get the story of this very well. I just, it's just, it for me, this song is like a mood as the kids say now. It just kind of like, it just, it really strikes me as sort of a dark, dark kind of thing. Really? And I think, I've heard from a lot of people made fun of Paul about this song and said it's like a lame story
0: song. Yeah. Yeah. You're the first person I've ever heard describe it as having kind of a a dark shadow cast on it. Uh, I always looked at it just like that. That's kind of some lightweight song about a mama's boy. And, you know, maybe I don't listen to it. Closely enough, uh, it, it was. It, he he did workshop it with the Beatles. Uh, it was on the original Glenn John's version of Get Back. Uh, but then when Specter took it over, he pulled it off. He didn't feel it was it was suitable for the album or his production techniques. Here's a quote from McCartney: uh, "You can hear on it that the band wasn't very interested in it. I don't know why. Maybe I hadn't finished it enough or something. Maybe it was just tension coming in. Uh, the bit I'd like to keep actually was John sort of making fun of it. He started." Towards the end of it going, grab your partner, do si do. so we kept that on the anthology three version, and while it was in some way indicative of friction, it was good-humored friction. He gonna
1: see go sure. And he said,
0: Mama, mama, don't worry cause teddy boy.
1: us through take your partners and don't seek dome hold them tight and don't let go when you got it jump up take your
0: partners and don't seek dome when you got it and let it go hold them tight and yeah that's that's an interesting take you have on that
1: yeah, I mean, I guess it's all perspective, like it's just, you hear it from your own personal perspective, but yeah, yeah, there's a weird darkness to this, and uh, that that's, I find sort of unsettling, but I'd it's like, say it's like, I like it, it's a cool song.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about darkness, I, I, I see way more, you know, and darkness is probably a bit strong, but you know, Eleanor Rigby, uh, certainly, uh, She's Leaving Home. Uh, that would be another one, yeah. You know, another one, but, you know, they're almost, I've described them before, they're like little Harold Pinter plays, really. Yes, um, that's a better way of putting it than I did, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, whereas maybe this isn't. Now, so we have a McCartney soft doe-eyed Paul in Teddy Boy, albeit you think there's a bit of a darkness there. Uh, and he also had his more shouty rock voice on the cut before, Mama Miss America. And the guy even now, Mo, he has so many different voices. So you're a producer these days, and my question to you is, uh, we're going the old guy route again here, do artists have to be able to sing well? anymore and, and and I'll give you two examples and this is my my bias, not yours. I listen to Drake or Justin Bieber and or Lord and their voices having been crushed through 50 compressors and an, a half a dozen limiters and autotune and they're still little these little weedy reedy voices like where is the the ballsy McCartney or Roger Daltrey uh, or like is that around anymore? Well, you know, here's the thing.
1: A lot of people develop... I mean, when you think about, uh, you know, the way that John Lennon sang and the way that Paul McCartney sang, they sang that way because they used to do four sets a night for years, playing covers, having to sing, um, using other people's voices, trying to sound like that artist or trying to sound like this artist. And that was just part of their training. And so... um, a lot of artists now don't have that. They don't spend 5 years on the road before they get a record deal. They don't they don't really do that. You know, they get groomed as young people and they may take singing lessons and that kind of thing, but you, you don't get that same thing unless you're out playing covers you know for three or four hours a night you know and in the worst circumstances people hate you you know your the microphones don't work nothing works you're sleeping on the floor somewhere like that kind of thing like that turns you into something you know and I think a lot of it is that I think a lot of artists have never gone through those kinds of hardships in order to and so that you hear it in their voice they just don't have that Character to their voice,
0: yeah. Because I hate to, I hate to sound like shouty old guy, but that's what. Not that, not that they're not great artists in their own right, but I, I just, uh, I just go, where's the great singing voice? But there you go, <laughs> there you go. Uh, cut for a song that uh, doesn't have a singing voice, sing along junk, uh, which was take one of the original version Uh, and then they Take Two was the one that he actually put uh, he put a uh, lyrics to Uh, much to say about this one this to me this is a bit
1: redundant like if there was no junk and this was junk I would think it was amazing you know because it's like it really is beautiful and it actually really does work as an instrumental like it's it's perfectly engaging as an instrumental it doesn't feel like like it, this would be great if it had a vocal on it kind of instrumental it's like it's pretty good as an instrumental but because there's the vocal version and we have that absolutely sensational Paul McCartney vocal on the original this one just kind of feels like like it was Put in because to round out the record to make sure there was enough playing time on it to be worth the money kind of thing that's how i hear it which is a weird thing because like i said stand alone it's great it's fantastic but in the context of the record i feel it it I I, I don't see the place for it in in terms of in the the context
0: of this particular album. It it is almost
1: being saved and put on like RAM or 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 a record later or something. You know,
0: it's another cut that shows up on his uh, MTV Unplugged special. Uh, They just played the instrumental version under the closing credits. Um, and it sounds lovely So hey, hey just throwing this out there uh, if, if you're looking for a tour manager or ideas, but uh, what about a what about you go out there a pursuit of happiness unplugged album? could you could you pull that off with like are the songs suitable enough that you could just go out with a twelve string and a six string acoustic and would they stand up under scrutiny for you just to go out and and perform that in small venues like myself yeah okay well two things one during this sort of unplugged era
1: the pursuit of happiness actually did a tour an unplugged tour where we had played all acoustic instruments dave played a little he got these little drum pads and he just kind of sat down on a chair and played these little drum pads we all sat in a circle and we sang and we sang a lot of pursuit of happiness songs and we sang a lot of covers we sang a bunch of weird covers too and and um so we did that for, I don't know, and it was fun. It was, it was pretty fun. I think some people expected a Pursuit of Happiness show and didn't get one and got mad, but some people, I think, really, really liked it and thought it was kind of cool. Um, and then uh, when I did my solo record, I went out by myself. I just went out and I, I, it was kind of like half of it was just me talking telling stories and just ruminating and the other half was me just playing the songs acoustically on, on acoustic guitar and sometimes I pick up an electric guitar and play it and, and yeah I did a whole tour of that on my solo record so yeah some of the songs are great um, on acoustic guitar and, and, uh, and some of them aren't because it's funny when I we've been talking about like you know the first time you get a four track and you know a lot sort of the genesis of a lot of these songs and I, I when I when I got a when I actually bought my own four track and I started working on songs I was doing that I was improvising and I throw down a drum beat and I'd start to improvise some bass, improvise some guitars and I'd improvise vocal. And so the songs weren't like, I didn't sit down with a guitar and figure out what the song was going to be before I wrote it. It just kind of ended up being finished. And so some songs like that don't translate as well to just kind of singing them and playing them on an acoustic guitar. So there were songs that worked really well like that and then songs that didn't work as well. (laughs) I guess that's the best way to do it. There's there's a joke, there's like, um, you know, a lot of people in the industry say this and it's Oh crap but they say a great song can be just played with a vocal and acoustic guitar and you know and and I always used to say well it makes me feel like some of my songs weren't that great then. <laughs> it sounds so great on just a vocal and acoustic guitar
0: <laughs> uh, well I, I apologize for not uh, for not knowing that uh, that you guys had done that acoustic I wish I could I wish I had a recollection of that because I mean, I think that would have been great. I mean, and what jumps to mind is initially, if you just said Nirvana are going to do an unplugged show, you just said, "Are you out of your mind?" Do you know? Have you heard? Never mind. Uh, right. But yet, the the material stands up beautifully to just an acoustic Absolutely. treatment.
1: Couldn't agree more. Yeah, the it, material was great. They had they had great songs, and that's why they sounded so good on acoustic guitars. Oh,
0: I, I wish uh, you, you don't have any uh, you don't have any bootlegs sitting around from those Pursuit of Happiness acoustic tours, do you? uh
1: maybe i don't know i'd have to <laughs> snoop around yeah
0: i oh, would love i would love to hear one um but that, that is that is really cool i had no idea you'd done that there uh, was
1: an unreleased movie of me a concert movie of me performing the solo thing that my old manager jeff rogers shot he and but i, I, I don't i don't even know where that is get it out can't.
0: there get it out
1: there I know I think I pro- I think we didn't release it because my singing was so terrible. <laughs> but it, 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 the storytelling was okay, but I think the singing was a bit rough. So
0: we are going to jump into the last couple of cuts on this album and uh, the song that I would guess most people would grade as the best on the record. We're going to do that in just a sec. But right now I just want to take a quick moment to talk to any musicians or artists out there. And I know there are several who listen to the podcast i'll ask you this how would you like a custom podcast in the style of this one in support of your next album launch or maybe to get the word out on an old album an overlooked gem something you want to promote what we'll do is go through your album new or old track by track and you can use the podcast to promote your work exactly the way you'd like it to be promoted. You can use it on your social channels or even as a special bonus that you could send out to your fans or patrons. Now, if that sounds like an idea that might interest you, then get in touch with me via my website, romicast.com, romycast.com R-O-M-Y-C-A-S-T dot com, Get in touch with me there, and we will take it from there. Also, uh, non-musicians, just listeners of this podcast, if you'd like to receive the once-in-a-while, absolutely free, The Walrus Was Paul newsletter, uh, what I do is I usually preview upcoming episodes or toss in the odd bit of trivia, you can receive that email blast by going to the website and registering. It is absolutely free. So back into side two of McCartney we go. And the next track is one of the finest songs Paul McCartney has ever written.
1: Baby, I'm amazed the way you love me all the time. yes, I'll I'll make some enemies here, but for me, this is the greatest song written by a Beatle on a solo record. Like a solo Beatle song. This is the best, better than any of the other guys did, as far as I'm concerned. It's just so good. It's such a good song. And the performance of it is so great like if some of the performances on some of these other songs feel a little half-baked and this he sings the crap out of this song it's just such an incredible vocal and on top of that it's the greatest guitar solo he ever played and it may be the greatest guitar solo on any Beatles related thing as well so it's just such a great solo and it's also what the other guitar player is doing under the solo is also great it's just everything about this is just so amazing Even though it's like a clearly a, a love song to Linda, it it doesn't have that sugary sentimentality to it. It really feels more adulty. It feels like a real strong mature sentiment to me um you know the idea maybe i'm amazed like like that you know that it's such a w- wonderful thing for him to have felt that to feel like i'm amazed and and people have written songs like this since then like you know you amaze me or you hear them country songs and stuff and it always sounds just so nothing but this sounds so honest and innocent and sincere um yeah i just I don't, it's definitely not the best song he's ever written, but it's, I think it's post Beatles, it's the best song of his. And I don't hear any, as many great, you know, George Harrison, John Lennon songs as there are. This really, there's just something amazing. It, like, if this had been on Abbey Road, that would have been so great. It would have been such a great moment on side two of Abbey Road if it just kind of all broke down right around instead of maybe like, you know, where Golden Slumbers was. If all of a sudden we went into that, like, that would have been incredible, incredible.
0: Classic yeah. McCartney, right? Musical, Absolutely. melodic, rocky. Uh, that great piano part with the, uh, the 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 sort of chromatic scale between the verses. You talked about the great electric guitar solo. I mean, it's it's yeah, it tour and,
1: and the, the Jerry Lee Lewis, but down like the pounding on the piano, like everything about it is just. Like I said, it's it really sounds like Abbey Road. It just sounds like it could have been on Abbey Road.
0: Blows Your Mind, to it, it got a ton of play just off the album, was never released as a single from that album. I had
1: heard this. Yeah,
0: just uh, uh, amazingly. He didn't release any singles from this record, uh, despite calls to do so. He did release it as a single from 1977's Wings Over America, so seven years later, and oh. it hits number 10, on the U.S. Billboard chart, 28 in the U.K., number nine on the Canadian RPM chart. So a seven-year-old song. Um, yeah, it's, it's just... Now, can I give you a theory? Sure. About Okay, so here's a theory, and I want to get your reaction to it. So... so as far as we can tell, McCartney, start, this starts off as kind of a homegrown thing that he's doing at home in, in his front parlor. He goes into Morgan Studios in Willesden, which were okay, but they, they weren't like the, the caliber of, of EMI Studios. Um, so, he doesn't go into EMI Studios until February 21st. So, here's what I think. So he's doing this. It's kind of a homemade thing. He's not quite sure what's going, you know, how it's going to morph out. All of a sudden, on February the 6th, 1970, he might have heard John Lennon's Instant Karma, and he would have undoubtedly seen John Lennon on top of the pops performing the song on February the 11th, 1970. Now, to me... This might have been the point where the penny dropped for McCartney in terms of realizing that the Beatles were absolutely done. Because prior to this, Lennon had released Give Peace a Chance and Cold Turkey as singles, both not suitable as Beatles releases. In fact, the Beatles had rejected Cold Turkey when it was presented to them by Lennon as a candidate for a single uh, late in the Abbey Road sessions. Instant Karma was not Cold Turkey, Or give peace a chance. It was a bona fide Beatles caliber song. Went on to become a top five hit in the US and in the UK. A great song that the Beatles could have done. And I wonder if McCartney saw that and went, holy shit, it's game on. And then all of a sudden, Mo, 10 days later, he's in Abbey Road Studios. And he bangs out, maybe I'm amazed every night man we was lonely the three strongest tracks on the album so i mm-hmm. i wonder if he heard instant karma and went okay
1: see again proving our point these guys pushed each other you know and i i i, I wouldn't be surprised if you were absolutely right on that that yeah
0: yeah i, I don't know yeah. it's just a theory but when i look at the dates you know it's it's funny he did like you know th- th- those three songs i just mentioned and of course maybe i'm amazed being like that's a proper song that that's not sing along junk or or banging around in your front in your front parlor right
1: no no it's a real song and it's got great production values and it's like i said it sounds more like like an abbey road track so i would not be surprised if he if that exact thing happened and that's again that was the that was the value of being in the beatles is trying to one up each other and you know not, not trying to not to look stupid in front of the other guys and you know So, yeah, that would not surprise me at all, you know.
0: Is is that a feeling in in the pit of your stomach, the first time when you go in and present a song to your bandmates? Yeah, I
1: mean, uh, you know, even though I was the songwriter in the band, I, I, I would sometimes... I think there were songs I brought into the band, and I would sort of sense a feeling like they weren't that into that song and then i would kind of like okay i don't think i like that and then there'd be times when i bring something in and everyone would be like wow they i remember i remember i would written and i'd actually demoed a song that ended up on our third record it was called pressing lips and i remember we were all in our van and i said i got a song i want to play you guys and i played the song and they're like wow play that again and i think we played it 3 times in a row and i don't think i've ever gotten that kind of reaction ever from the guys playing a song to them and so yeah so you do you do i you know i don't want to be embarrassed i don't want to play them something that makes me look like an idiot so yeah i would i wouldn't play them something if i thought well you know i'm not sure about this one i don't know if it's if it's good enough so it's real value and you know like i said like i one of the things that you know i think that paul um you know, got out of being in the Beatles was just like that, ten, you know, his some of his more twee tendencies got shaved off. It's kind of like when, when David Lee Roth left Van Halen and all of a sudden Eddie Van Halen was sort of free to do some of the things that he ended up doing. And I, I think... I, I, whatever you might think of David Lee Roth, I think he was the person who kind of reigned in... He was that person. He was the John Lennon of those guys that kind of reigned in some of the more sort of, uh, you know, sappy tendencies that Eddie Van Halen might have had, you know.
0: Uh, and then out of uh, that amazing song, it's kind of weird how the album ends. Uh, sort of an experimental track called Karina Core. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> this is just strange. It's funny. When you look at the, the, how the record... The sequencing of this record is is very interesting um so we start off with the little snippet and it was it really takes four songs before we get our proper song and it's like it, it, you'd think like if this record had been released 10 years later there's no way the record label would allowed it to be sequenced like this it would have been Maybe I'm Amazed would have been the third song and Every Night would have probably been the second song you know and, but, and it's funny that Maybe I'm Amazed is basically the last song on the record I mean Korean Accor is kind of like a little tag more than anything else Korean Accor and, but it's, it's almost like Maybe I'm Amazed was your reward for slogging through <laughs> everything that had come before <laughs> and I was like okay thanks so much for listening to my indulgence. Now, here's the song. Here's the song you thought you were going to hear when you picked this record up, you know? And so I sort of feel like it's that. And then Crane of Core is just so strange. It's just like the perfect song to end this record because it's the strangest song on the entire record. <laughs> It's like you would never, in your wildest dreams, if you were, you know, I, I'm not a a scholar, a Beatles scholar, but I would, you know, knowing as much as I know about Paul McCartney, I would never even think he would ever think to write a song like this, like, and it's just, it's so weird. It's like, yeah, it's just weird. And I, I, I I'm gonna write a song about an obscure tribe, you know, threatened by an encroaching white population. That's. <laughs>
0: yeah he, 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 he,
1: didn't he seen, hadn't seen that up to that point, put it that way. <laughs>
0: he, he was watching a film on TV, a documentary about the Karina Corps Indians living in the Brazilian jungle, their lives and how uh, their way of life was being changed by, uh, by encroachment and uh, that's, that he, he started off with a drum track. Uh, and then there are all kinds of weird things on there. Uh, he and Linda doing animal noises and, and they sped it up. Uh, an arrow sound. Done live with a bow and arrow, apparently in the studio. Animals stampeding. Uh, so yeah, really. They, they, and they broke some twigs in this. Very um, in its own way, very uh, Revolution Nine.
1: Well, yeah, I, I, you know that's one thing I, I should say, and I, sh- I shouldn't say this is completely unexpected because if you this song could have been on the White Album, like maybe you know, yeah, it's, it's, it has enough in common with some of the weirder stuff on the White Album, yeah. Definitely that was their most experimental record and that would, this could have maybe been a part of that.
0: So a couple things before I let you go. Um, now first of all, this one goes, sort of goes off the Beatle track for a second. Um, but I've, I've, I read a, a wonderful piece you wrote in which you talked about Joni Mitchell and any regular listener of this podcast know that, uh, I, Think she, for my money, the greatest combination—lyricist, singer, and player—ever. I mean, she's sure. g- genius. Uh, and you wrote this. You said I was invited to an intimate performance by Joni at Much Music several years ago, and afterwards, I got her to sign my copy of Court and Spark. I hope you still have it. Uh, she did. And when I looked into her eyes, they had that sparkle that I've seen in some other heroes of mine's eyes—that says, "I'm smarter and more talented than you." If she hadn't made Court and Spark, I wouldn't have written many of the songs I did or they would have been very different. And I want you to tease that out because on the surface, I go, wow. Because um, the songs you wrote were way heavier than most of the stuff she wrote. So how did she influence you as a songwriter? I think, well, she
1: influenced me a lot um because of, like, a lot of the chords she used, I just found them so uh, evocative and just so beautiful that I often would try and imitate them. She used to, I guess she had something wrong, she has something wrong with her hands. I think she had a, some kind of, like, debilitating disease or something. And so she open tunes her guitar so that she can play chords easier on her, on her and so she has all these beautiful tunings that where she was able to play these really, really beautiful chords. And so that was a lot of it. Um... Also, like in my formative years, I was really into the sort of idea of like the the real personal songwriting thing. And so her, there was nobody who wrote um, more sort of from a personal point of view, I think, ever than Joni Mitchell. She was basically. I always felt like when I was listening to her records that she it was just her diary. She was just kind of talking about herself all the time. And there's these there's a real confessional. Uh, Feeling like a confessional tone to all of her songs like, um, and so I, I think I really that also played into my writing a lot I felt like you know and there's other people I was listening to that were like that I think Pete Townsend had that quality to his writing as well too and so did Lou Reed um, but Lou Reed was more weird he was into a more kind of like a a weird idea, but that that idea that you could sort of really say what you wanted to say instead of writing in the sort of vernacular of rock and roll, like you know, there's certain words you say in every song, and those are the ways you describe love or describe being hurt or all those things. Whereas you know, she described in such vivid detail this you know how she felt and how she saw things, and just you know, uh, you know, let's not talk about fare thee wells now. The night is a starry dome, you know, like stuff like that would just fly off her tongue, like they, you know, and so it's. So I, I, I know I've never written anything like that, but, but so, and again, it's the irony of that is that, um, I, our songs have ne- barely ever been covered. And, and I think it's because, partly because of that, because, because I wrote so personally, I wrote, and even though most of the songs weren't even personal songs, but I wrote them from such a weird perspective, like my own perspective, that, I uh, um, that I feel like a lot of people are like, I can't sing that. <laughs> I can't sing that. That's weird. That's just crazy. I'm not singing like... Because I, I guess I was never... and I don't mean this to sound immodest or anything. I guess I was never worried about making a fool of myself. Like, I often thought of myself like I was kind of like a comedian. Like, I didn't care about showing like this sort of weird side of myself or unpleasant side. I always felt comfortable doing that. And... I, I remember writing. I, I don't know if I've ever told you this story, Paul. But I remember writing with a big, big Canadian artist, and you know, he said he was a big fan, and he said, you know, um, I just I want someone to write some lyrics for me, and he, I, I said, well, what do you want? Like, and he said, I said I want you to just do your thing, and so I did. He gave me some music. I wrote my thing, and he said that exact thing to me. He said, I can't sing this. I'm not singing this. <laughs> and I was like, all right, I guess you really didn't want me. You didn't want my thing, <laughs> so. So anyway, I, I, you know, jo, I think lots of people cover Joni Mitchell songs. That's, that's a different thing. But I think she allowed me, I think when I heard her music, I felt like I could be allowed to just speak my mind. I could just say what I wanted to say.
0: I, I read that piece you wrote. Uh, and uh, dear reader, uh, dear listener, I, I encourage you, go to Mo's personal website, which is moberg.ca, Uh And there's a lot of his writing there on music. And it is, it is well worth the effort to go and read it. You write very well about, uh, I guess I shouldn't be surprised, that you write well about music it's it's been your life but some great reads there and this one was on the Joni Mitchell album Court and Spark which I think is for me her greatest album and I just think she's such a genius and I'm so jealous of the fact I I so regret I never got to see her play ever Uh, and I really regret that because it's not going to happen now you not only got that but you met her and she signed your I hope you still have that Oh, absolutely! Yeah, that's oh. th- that's never going anywhere. Yeah. Man, that is that is so cool. So, just talk a little bit about the cover art here as well. Um, the album, if if you haven't seen it, uh, the original vinyl album. The design concept for the album it, it's a gatefold, and it was McCartney's idea with artist Gordon House and designer Roger Huggett um, came in to work with them on it. You, so you have the, the cover the album you open it up gatefold and inside you have photos by linda mccartney all on the inside a collage of 21 family snapshots in the gatefold's inner spread uh you have paul linda their seven-year-old heather who was linda's daughter by her first marriage newborn mary uh, that's the baby who's in inside of his jacket on the front cover uh and the the famous mccartney sheepdog martha uh, immortalized in song on the White Album, in "Martha, My Dear," uh, the uh, that cover McCartney on the album was the first among uh, 27 years worth of albums by her husband to feature Linda McCartney's photography. And here's a quote from McCartney: "Linda did the photography, and this was interesting because we didn't know what we'd do with the cover. The cover actually became." The back cover, Uh, that would happen. People would make their own decision, which I always liked. So the Cherries picture has become the cover, but it's actually the back cover. We didn't know what to use. Linda had taken a lot of pictures of me sort of holding the guitar, doing a pose against the wall and stuff. We had about 30 or 40 pictures, and we couldn't decide. One of them was the one with me and my baby Mary in the jacket. Uh, And the cherries picture, there was a wall when we were on holiday. I believe it was in Antigua, a low wall outside the holiday villa where we put these out for the birds. Uh, So that is what those are. As the story goes, as I recall... He was showing or they were showing a bunch of the pictures, candidates for the cover to a good friend of theirs who was in the advertising industry. And he went through all the photos and he said, this one is absolutely amazing. It has to go on the cover. And that's the one with the baby inside the jacket. So that was supposed to be the cover, but it's really the back cover. And you have the cherries on the front. I hope that all <laughs> makes sense to, uh, to everyone involved, including you, Um, So just a a couple of the other, uh, just to give you context, other songs that were out at the time, other music at the time that this McCartney album came out, Bridge Over Troubled Water was huge by Simon and Garfunkel, Deja Vu, Crosby, Stills, Nash & Young, uh, Let It Be, so he was competing against himself, uh, Morrison Hotel by The Doors, uh, Canadian uh, Sit Down Young Stranger by Gordon Lightfoot and Ladies of the Canyon by Joni. And also, Band of Gypsies by Jimi Hendrix. So that's sort of what was out there. So Mo, uh, we've been we've been going back and forth for uh, the last hour and a half or so uh, talking about uh, this album. What's your sort of final takeaway from the album and our conversation? And what do you sort of walk away with in your mind? Um, yeah, I mean, I. like I said off the
1: top this record is almost better now for me than it was when I first heard it it's really I think it's aged very very well and I think it's like I said, you you start to see it through the lens of the music that you listen to since then. Um, I think I said that as well. But it's like when you think about all the indie rock and stuff that was that you know the lo-fi stuff that happened in the '90s on you know on Matador Records, like you know people like early Liz Fair records or Guided by Voices or people like that. This all this this all makes a lot of sense in that, and just but but also. Uh, I I think it's a great document of its time, as well as being this sort of timeless piece, where it really kind of, I I feel like I really got a glimpse into where McCartney's head was at, sort of post-Beatles. I can't imagine how torturous that period must have been for him, and how much different his life would have been, probably, if he hadn't had Linda, and... I think that Linda saved him, probably, and that's why so much of this is about him, and so many of the other records that he did after that are about her. Um, is because he'd have—I mean, the kind of complicated life you would have to have had as a Beatle, and then for and have devoted so many years of your life to it, and then for it to be gone—that's uh, got to be just the most incredibly difficult thing to have to deal with and so the fact that he made such a weird record and he wasn't like okay i'm gonna go out and i'm gonna make the most commercial record ever i'm gonna show everybody that the beatles were all about me and the fact that he didn't do that is just it's just kind of cool for me it's just really cool for me
0: mo i always enjoy uh, talking music with you and i thank you for the generosity of your time and i really do hope we can do it again sometime thank you oh thanks for having me paul appreciate it great
1: talking to you as well
0: Dear listener, always curious to know what you think, what your thoughts are on our thoughts regarding McCartney. Lo-fi masterpiece, something you don't listen to all that often? I'd like to hear from you. If nothing else, though, I do hope that our discussion will maybe send you back to the album if you haven't given it a listen in a while. Uh, I know for me, I won't listen to it for a while. I'll put it on and go, yeah, you know what? I get it. I know what he was trying to do. And it's, it's quite an enjoyable album. few outstanding tracks on there, as we've talked about over the course of the last couple of episodes. Uh, you can join the conversation in several ways. Chime in with your two cents worth. You can do it on the episode page for each podcast on my website. So each podcast has its own page and there's a comment box at the bottom you can chime in there that is at Romicast.com, the website uh also we can interact on twitter or instagram some people prefer that romanuk paul is the handle on both and of course there is always facebook just do a search on facebook for the walrus was paul podcast page and you can leave a comment there the next time on The Walrus Was Paul, we will speak with one of the artists that Mo Berg has produced on a few occasions. Singer, songwriter, musician, James Clark, a.k.a. the James Clark Institute. It'll be a couple of firsts on The Walrus Was Paul, the first time that we'll talk to James, and the first time that we will be looking at a Ringo Starr solo album. It'll be Ringo's 1973 number one album, Ringo. I love it. And maybe it's nostalgia now, part of it. I'm not sure. But I still think the
1: songs are great. The performances are fantastic. You know, the the guest stars on the album, are just phenomenal. I mean, you know, first of all, John Paul... john paul and george are all over the record you know he's got the band on the album he's got uh harry nelson he's got mark bolan he's got all these incredible you know people on this record so and and the the songs are just really well crafted songs
0: that's james clark talking about the album ringo and that is next time on the walrus was fall until then you take care
1: I never get tired of being Beatles. I
0: play the uh, bass and I play the drums, then I play a guitar and I tune.